Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team draft experts and talent scouts mock drafts and a few shock drafts too nfl total access the podcast is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts my whole life i've been told this one story about my family about how my great great grandmother was killed by the mafia back in sicily i was never sure if it was true so i decided to find out And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Lessons from the world's top professors. Anytime, anyplace. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. And we're back on the untold history of sports in America. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. Last time we talked about football, the explosion of the game across college campuses, and how it became a truly American invention. Today, We'll be speaking a little more broadly, not about a specific sport, but rather an ugly ideology that made its way into the world of early American athletics. Today, we'll be examining sport and Jim Crow. We'll be focusing on the stories of two African-American men, Isaac Murphy, the jockey, and Marshall Major Taylor, the cyclist. We'll also look at one of the first racially-fueled major American horse races, which was decided by a photo finish, by the way, just FYI, and how it ended the existence of the black jockey. And finally, how white American cyclists band together to segregate their sport, which inevitably killed its growth. So, without any further ado, here's Matt. As someone with a PhD in American history, here is something that I believe. If you want to understand American history, you need to understand African-American history. And here, very simply, is why. In my mind, the story of American history is the story of a clash. A clash between noble words and ideas like freedom and equality and opportunity and the reality of oppression or dominance or the lack of freedom. To me, the story of American history is the story of this tension, this tension between rhetoric and reality, between ideas and what actually happens. You know, sometimes the gap between rhetoric and reality is wide. Sometimes it's very thin or or even non-existent. But nowhere do we see this gap or this tension between rhetoric and reality more clearly than in the study of African-American history. In the 1940s, a sociologist named Gunnar Myrdal, he called this the glaring contradiction. 
a contradiction between claims that America is a free, egalitarian, and democratic society and the realities of racism, discrimination, and prejudice. There is a glaring contradiction, he said, between rhetoric and reality in the United States. Okay, fine, you say African-American history is important, but what can sports add to this conversation? You know, what can the study of sport tell us about this glaring contradiction? Well, the answer is a lot. I believe that there is no better arena in which to study this glaring contradiction, this clash between rhetoric and reality, than in the world of sport. Look, are are sports as important as education or housing or incarceration rates? No, absolutely not. But they are symbolic and they are revealing. Think of it like this. America is supposed to be about fairness and equality of opportunity. Well, this is exactly what sports are supposed to be as well. We celebrate this country as a place of opportunity where people can rise and fall based on their merit. And we celebrate sport for exactly the same reason. You rise and fall based on your individual ability. In sports, the playing field is supposed to be level. Sporting arenas are supposed to be the fairest spaces in the land of the fair. So if you want to measure the degree to which Black Americans have enjoyed equality of opportunity and the extent to which they have been treated fairly in this country, I argue that there is no better place to look than the world of sport, where people are supposed to be treated fairly. Now, Later in this course, we're going to complicate this idea. We will question whether sports actually do provide an accurate barometer for race relations in this country. You know, we'll ask the question, do black successes in sports actually mean anything? But that's a story for a different time and era. What I'm saying today is that for 100 years, say from 1865, which was the end of the Civil War, to 1965, right in the heart of the civil rights movement, if you wanted to gauge the extent to which Black Americans had access to the American dream, look no further than how Black athletes were treated in the world of sports. So today we begin by discussing race and sport at the end of the 19th century. And specifically, we're going to explore sport and segregation. We will look at how sports were part of the larger story of white supremacy in this nation. So today is about sport and Jim Crow. And just to be clear about terms here, when we speak of Jim Crow, we are talking about a culture of segregation or separation between black and white. Though a little more generally, Jim Crow refers to a whole culture in which white Americans are afforded opportunities that black Americans are not. So let's look at how Jim Crow reared its head in sport. And I guess there are a couple of ways we could do this. But what I want to do today is a little biography as history. I want to tell you the story of two black athletes in two different sports. And I think their stories give life to the strange career of Jim Crow. All right. Let me begin by telling you about Isaac Murphy. Isaac Murphy raced horses. He was a jockey, an African-American jockey. 
Isaac Murphy was born in 1861 in Kentucky. This is the year that the Civil War began. Though Isaac Murphy was not born into slavery, his father and mother were free blacks. Isaac Murphy grew up on a farm and he was a stable hand. He, he cared for horses. He fed them, he rode them, and he, as he got older, he raced them. In 1875, when he was 14 years old, he made his professional riding debut. Coincidentally, 1875, this is also the year of the very first Kentucky Derby. He wasn't in it, but that's the year, 1875. So there's a nice symmetry here, I think. You know, 13 of the 15 riders in that first Kentucky Derby were black, a sign that horse racing was dominated by black jockeys at that time. And this should not be totally surprising. You know, as you know, horse racing was a vestige of the era of Southern slavery. It had been the enslaved who took care of the horses. Slave masters would often race their horses against each other, and often it was their slaves who were the jockeys. And so after the Civil War, when African Americans gained their freedom in the South, Horse racing remained largely a black sport. That is, wealthy whites owned the horses and black men were their jockeys. So Isaac Murphy was one of many black jockeys in this era. But Isaac Murphy became the best of them all. And he certainly deserves consideration as one of the greatest jockeys of all time. I mean, if not the greatest. Isaac Murphy won three Kentucky Derbies. Isaac Murphy won 44% of his races. This is the highest percentage ever and a percentage that, frankly, will never be equaled. You know, in 1890, Isaac Murphy earned $20,000 racing horses. little comparative context. This was more than the entire payroll of the Chicago White Stockings baseball team. Be about a half million dollars today. And so from his humble beginnings as a stable boy in Kentucky, Isaac Murphy became one of the most famous and wealthiest athletes in the United States. Uh, he used sport for social mobility. And through sport, Isaac Murphy became rich. He, he was a star. And in the decades immediately after the Civil War, this was possible for the black athlete. 1890 was the year of Murphy's most famous race. It took place at the Coney Island Racetrack in New York. And it was one of the more highly anticipated horse races in American history. And it was highly anticipated, not because it was one of those north-south races that we talked about. It was highly anticipated because there was racial tension. This was a race between Isaac Murphy, riding a horse named Salvatore, and a white jockey named Snapper Garrison, who was riding a horse named Tenny. Isaac Murphy was horse racing's top gun, a big-time winner in big-time races. But Garrison was the young rising star. He was the best of a group of young white jockeys who were challenging the long-standing dominance of black jockeys in the sport. And the press absolutely understood this. And so they described this race not as one between fast horses, but they described this race as a race war. They described it as a battle for racial supremacy between the black and white jockeys. 
You know, all of this racial symbolism aside, Isaac Murphy and Snapper Garrison actually had way more in common than they had in difference. They were both brash and cocky. They both had a flair for the dramatic. I mean, both writers loved to win, not by a mile, but by an eyelash. To me, these two athletes were much more similar than they were different, but they were presented as being opposites because of the color of their skin. You know, it's all very similar, I think, to the way two basketball players in the 1980s, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, the way they were understood. They were remarkably similar players who were consistently portrayed as being opposites solely because of skin color. And we will discuss this when we get to the 1980s. But back to 1890, the scene was set. Isaac Murphy versus Snapper Garrison, or as the press explained it, black versus white. It sounded like a great race. The distance was a mile and a quarter. And Isaac Murphy and Salvatore, they got out fast. They, they covered the first mile in record time. And with only a quarter of a mile left to go, Snapper Garrison and his horse Tenny, they were hopelessly behind. Or so it seemed. The finish to this race is one of these moments that horse racing fanatics still like to talk about today, although no one alive today was actually there. Garrison the white jockey, he began frantically whipping his horse, Tenny, and Tenny surged. And as the thousands of spectators, they were screaming deliriously, Isaac Murphy calmly stood up in the saddle and started coasting Salvatore toward the finish. While Garrison, riding Tenny, he sprinted and he closed the gap and then seemed to pass Isaac Murphy and Salvatore at the finish line. Or did he? Both riders claimed they had won. Fans argued over who had won. But using a brand new technology, the photographed finish, it was determined that Isaac Murphy had beaten Snapper Garrison. So in June of 1890 at Coney Island, Isaac Murphy stood tall in the saddle. And I guess I mean that both literally and figuratively. He was at the top of his sport. What he did not know, however, was that the professional black jockey was about to become extinct. The black jockeys were about to disappear. Black jockeys disappeared because white jockeys ganged up on them. And they did this in a couple of ways. Resenting the dominance of black jockeys, white jockeys worked together to gang up against the black jockeys on the track. White jockeys conspired to box in black jockeys as they raced, or they used their whips, not on their horses, but on the black jockeys while racing. So they used violence. But much more effectively, they ganged up on the black jockeys off the track. In 1896, the white jockeys banded together and formed a labor union known as the Jockey Association. And the white jockeys refused to let the black jockeys join the jockey association. Look, white jockeys resented the accomplishments of black jockeys. They resented the money that black jockeys like Isaac Murphy were making. And so they banded together and they refused to race against black jockeys. 
the men who owned the horse racing tracks in the South and, you know, up and down the Atlantic coast and places like Kentucky and Maryland, they followed suit, you know, hoping to lure more paying customers to their tracks. They gave in to the demands of the white jockeys. Although giving in is the wrong way to put it. They went along with this scheme. They thought they could make the claim that their gambling sport, horse racing, was more respectable if it was a sport for whites only. And again, let me emphasize the year here, 1896. 1896 is a very important year in the history of race in this country. 1896 is the year that the Supreme Court ruled in Plessy versus Ferguson. And though this case is not about sports, I think it's important to know what this case is about. I want to do this very briefly. Plessy versus Ferguson was a case about a black man, Homer Plessy, who broke a new Louisiana state law that said that all railroad cars had to be segregated by race. Plessy rode on a train, but he refused to sit in a Jim Crow, what were called back then, colored car. He was arrested for breaking state law, and he sued. And his lawyers argued that this Louisiana law, you know, forcefully segregating railroad cars, they said this violates the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, the amendment that says that all American citizens are entitled to equal protection of the law. People are to be treated equally with regard to the law. And Plessy's lawyers said, by segregating Plessy, By not allowing him to sit in the train car of his choice, the state of Louisiana had violated the Constitution. Well, the Supreme Court came back with a decision that said the state of Louisiana can indeed segregate its railroad cars. Specifically, the court said racial segregation is constitutional as long as facilities are separate but equal. That's where that famous phrase comes from, separate but equal. This was the legal basis for racial segregation in the United States. This, in 1896, was Supreme Court approval for Jim Crow. Though, let's be honest, separate was almost never equal. So the creation of the All-White Jockey Association is part of a larger movement at this time in which Black Americans are being segregated in many aspects of life in schools, public transportation, in hotels, in restaurants, and in sports. Now, 1896, this was most definitely the end for Isaac Murphy. That same year, Murphy contracted pneumonia, and he died that year in Lexington, Kentucky. But 1896 marks the beginning of the end for black jockeys much more generally. A few managed to somehow stubbornly hang around. For example, a guy named Jimmy Winkfield, he won the Kentucky Derby in 1902. But Winkfield is the last black jockey to do so, the very last. Barred from full membership in the Jockey Association, black jockeys were all but erased from professional horse racing a few years later. And they really did not return until after the civil rights movement of the 1960s. After the break, the story of the greatest American cyclist you've never heard of.
NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily, as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the white jockeys didn't fight fair, to use a sports term. And neither did the white wheelmen, or bicyclists. Now let me tell you about someone named Marshall Major Taylor. Major Taylor was the greatest cyclist of his era. And this was an era when cycling was huge in the United States. You know, if we compare how famous someone was in his era, with how unknown he is today, Major Taylor, at least with regards to sports, might be at the absolute top of that list. In the 1890s, cycling, oh, it was a fad of epidemic proportions, a, a, a fad fueled by the invention of a new type of bicycle, the rover or safety bicycle, which is the type of bicycle we are familiar with now. Americans were cycling crazy in the 1890s. We'll talk uh, more about this when we get to early women's sports and athleticism. Part of the boom in the interest in cycling was the rise of bicycle racing as a spectator sport. Um, Velodromes or, or cycling racetracks, they were built throughout the United States and large, massive crowds would come out to watch the scorchers, as the cyclists were often called scorchers. You know, these scorchers were the the daredevil speedster heroes of the day, kind of like stock car drivers after World War II. Well, one of these scorchers was Major Taylor. He was born in Indianapolis in 1878, and he grew up working at a bicycle shop in Indianapolis. 
1892, when he was 13 years old, he entered his first race, a 10-miler. He was competing against grown men, and he won. And over the course of the next decade, Major Taylor just kept winning. And Major Taylor became the American national champion. He was the greatest cyclist in the United States. Major Taylor was the most recognizable black athlete in the United States. He was one of the most recognizable athletes, period. Cycling was an integrated sport, and Major Taylor was on top. He was on top of a sport, though, that more and more was starting to be advertised in terms of a race war. Like in horse racing, promoters were using the rising racial tensions of the era and promoting these races as black versus white on the velodrome. And then, just like it had happened to the black jockeys, Major Taylor was chased from the sport, at least here in the United States. State by state, white cyclists, they banded together and they began to refuse to race against black cyclists like Taylor. Like with horse racing, the velodrome owners and the race organizers, they allowed this to happen. The white scorchers could not beat Major Taylor on the track, so they got rid of him. They, they segregated him out of their sport. American cycling became all white in the same era, the 1890s, just as American horse racing had. And so Major Taylor had no choice. He had to go to Europe to race, which he did and where he dominated. He became one of the all-time greats, but that happened in Europe, not in the United States. But there's a really interesting paradox to this story, a tremendous irony, I suppose. Because with the removal of Major Taylor from American cycling, the sport actually became way less popular. Part of it has to do with the fact that the automobile came along and, and auto racing started to supplant bicycle racing in the American imagination. But part of it has to do with the fact that the racial drama in the sport was now gone. Even though many white Americans were becoming increasingly uneasy with interracial sport, and even though many white cyclists, they resented the success of guys like Major Taylor, the fact is racial tension brought intrigue and excitement to the sport of cycling. The, the issue of race made the bicycle races more interesting to Americans. And so once the white cyclists succeeded in segregating Major Taylor out of their sport, cycling was suddenly less interesting to the American public. Yeah, with, with Taylor gone, the white wheelmen could win more, win more races, yes, but their sport quickly became less popular and less lucrative. Here is a straightforward truism about the history of American sport. Racial tension sells tickets. We will see this over and over and over in this course. Okay, let me end today by pointing toward next time when we're going to return to boxing. Another of the sports at the turn of the century that saw black athletes do increasingly well was prize fighting. For example, there was Canada's George Dixon. 
Dixon was the first black man to win a world title in boxing. He won the world featherweight title in 1890. There was Joe Gans from Baltimore, the first African-American to win a boxing title. Gans won the lightweight title in 1902. A recent retrospective of American boxing just called Joe Gans the greatest lightweight boxer of all time. So George Dixon and Joe Gans, they are evidence that at the turn of the 20th century, more and more black boxers were rising to the top. Well, just like we saw with horse racing, just like we saw with cycling, this rise of the black boxers, it was causing anxiety among white Americans. In 1895, the editor of the New York Sun a man named Charles Dana, who was white. He issued the following warning to his white readers. He wrote, We are in the midst of a growing menace. The black man is rapidly forging to the front of athletics, especially in the field of fisticuffs, that is boxing. We are in the midst of a black rise against white supremacy. Wake up, you pugilists of the white race. That's all for now. Next time on The Untold History of Sports in America, presented by One Day University, the first black heavyweight champion turns American sports upside down. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.